1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Not that room! Not that room! Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the Dead. Meet me on the roof at 9 o'clock. Get out. I don't believe We're it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, except the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences, George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. We may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. Oh, you want to play Psycho Killer? Can I be the helpless victim? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien! It's all for you! I am the eater of wolves and of children! You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another undead installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 290, Dawn of the Dead. So there's a part in this movie when they're first approaching the mall via helicopter and they're kind of, it's like overdubbed, explaining what they're coming to. Like, oh, this shopping center, it's almost like we have to explain what a mall is. 
Yeah, there weren't as many giant malls back then in the mid-70s. And at first I kind of was laughing about it, but then it had me thinking, well, it was pretty hyper-vigilant looking down the line here. How many years away are we from people being like, what is a mall? <laughs> yeah, it was explaining it to the 70s audiences and it's explaining it to the 2020s Yeah, audience. really. What is this place? I know. Yes, that's right. We're talking about the 1978 original from George A. Romero. This is the finale of The Greatest October, and Mm. what an October it was, folks. I can't believe it's already over. I think October is the best month of the year, every year, and holy shit, what a depressing stretch of months I have to look forward to. I'm bummed already, but let's enjoy it, the epic conclusion. Well, the good news is that unlike most previous years we're not really taking a break that is good news we're just rolling (laughs) on with the episodes for the rest of the year yeah so hang in there we're gonna get back to a more regular schedule like we did prior to the greatest october where we were cramming them in left and right wherever we could do it but we're gonna get back more to a week-to-week deal so follow along on twitter at greatest pod And make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. And we'd love to hear from you, folks. Definitely. How How did you enjoy this greatest October? You can send us a tweet, slide into the DMs, whatever you need to do. So let's get into Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Technically not seen by most people in the States until 1979. Hmm. A lot of Pittsburgh regional mentions going on. Yeah, this is a hometown movie for us. This is where we're located. We're recording this episode probably about 30 to 35 minutes away from the Monroeville Mall. A mall that I've been to plenty of times, although not recently. Yeah, same. Kind of a hike. I was thinking about going out there prior to recording this just to re-familiarize myself with everything that's different, but I just didn't really have time because it is kind of inconvenient in a way. I actually feel like I've spent a decent amount of our friendship hanging out at malls, but not this one really. (laughs) Just never conveniently located to where we've been. Dawn of the Dead was written and directed by George A. Romero and is, of course, an iconic classic horror film. It is technically a sequel to Night of the Living Dead from a decade earlier. It's part of the Undead series of films from Romero that we'll get more into later. It had a budget of $640,000 and it was a huge hit with the box office coming in at 66 million. It was a worldwide phenomenon. I was sort of stunned by those numbers. I know it to be a movie that people know and love, but I don't know, like I said, when I was going to watch this for the pod, I I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. Yeah, I'm wondering if the rights are sort of weird because technically in the US, there was a Blu-ray release, but it's long out of print. Mm. I actually had the opportunity to crack open my giant Second Sight 4K box set, but that is an import. Second yeah. Sight is a UK company. Big day. Yeah, that thing is also probably worth some money. Yeah. Not not as much now that I've opened it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering if there's some 
hoops to jump through right now with this movie and if it's not going to end up just being public domain eventually like night of the living dead i don't really know what the deal is yeah but i guess it makes sense that you had trouble tracking it down so if you have not seen the film and would like to just look on youtube yeah that's where i watched it it's (laughs) out there there's multiple cuts on youtube actually when there's no more room in hell the dead will walk the earth oh yeah the story of Dawn of the Dead is not the easiest one to tell, but we'll give it a shot. As is the case <laughs> with low-budget, non-studio films of the past, there is plenty of conflicting information. Due to the relentless graphic violence, there is a plethora of various cuts of the film in order to get it past the censors in different territories and countries. Books can and have been written on just Tom Savini's practical effects for the film alone, There were countless extras used in the film and some pretty significant script changes made during filming. Dawn of the Dead is the second film in Romero's series of zombie pictures, though there is no real specific direct character or location crossover with the preceding film, Night of the Living Dead. Romero is an icon because of his, I want to say creation, although that's a little bit grand of a term to use, Uh but... He basically modernized what we would come to know as zombies. Yeah. And certainly his partnership with Tom Savini would go down. To yeah, Savini the- was supposed to work on Night of the Living Dead and was drafted into Vietnam and so didn't. But then comes back from Vietnam and uses some of the horrific things he saw yeah, yeah. as inspiration for his practical effects and would go on to a pretty legendary career. But Romero, aside from being the godfather of zombie films, is a Pittsburgh legend. Yep. Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Martin, The Crazies. A lot of his films were set in Pittsburgh or the Pittsburgh area. The legacy is immeasurable, really, because I was trying to think of all of the different variations of things that spring from his creation, from his long coattails right when it comes to the specific genre or subgenre within horror and it's impossible yeah i know you start going down a million different through lines the evil dead the return of the living dead zombie the walking two. dead yeah the unofficial sequels yeah. zombie 2 in italy all of the the fulci stuff yeah there's just so much and i mean even things like resident evil or 28 Days Later, or a lot of those things, which had their own little variations on the theme, but took a lot of inspiration from it. At some point it changed that zombies run in like more modern movies. Yeah. That seems to be more often the case. There's something to the slower pace and the mood and tone from that. It's less of a thriller. Yeah, it's more of a... A rising tide. Yeah. Like, it's just slow, but still inevitable. Right. Which gives you more time to have the dread build. I think that there's some conscious decisions made in Dawn of the Dead, which differ greatly from the more modern presentation of zombies and things of that nature. And that sort of goes along with it. The slow, lumbering zombie that more or less still resembles a human being Yeah, is definitely a different choice than what a lot of the stuff would go with later, like The Walking Dead or 
or whatever. There's just something to how it seems so easily escapable, but you're just eventually going to be overtaken by it. Dawn of the Dead is the only film in the Romero series to actually use the word zombie. Mm. Ken Faree says it towards the end when they're dealing with the biker gang and he says there's going to be 10,000 zombies or something like that. Oh, gotcha. That's the only yeah. time in the entire series of these movies that the word zombie is used. Oh, wow. And Romero initially didn't think of them as that because he was going off of the movie White Zombie or some of those old Bela Lugosi movies. And yeah. the zombies in those, it's it, it's a completely different thing, really. I guess they were technically like undead, people brought back from the dead, but they weren't necessarily carrying a plague the same way. I don't know. It's hard to explain. What yeah, I mean, yeah. But it wasn't exactly the same thing. The look jumped out to me just because uh, a lot of blue, like blue man group zombies. Yeah, it's like a bluish gray. Yeah. I think Savini sort of regretted that decision after a while, but he was not sure how to make them look because Night right. of the Living Dead is in black and white. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> and just sort of went with that. The franchise as a whole centers on different groups of people attempting to survive during the outbreak and then evolution of a zombie apocalypse. Dawn of the Dead was followed by four official sequels, beginning with 1985's Day of the Dead, and then also a separate series of unofficial Italian-made sequels, which was a very common thing to happen to popular American films, beginning with 1979's Zombie 2, directed by Lucio Fulci. It has also inspired a 2004 remake directed by Zack Snyder, written by James Gunn. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about that film later. In terms of the unique timeline that Romero is trying to create with these films, Dawn of the Dead marks the moment in time where it's sort of equal between the amount of humans and zombies, whereas Night of the Living Dead is sort of the very beginning, and then different movies pick up different time frames. But it's not as if Romero is saying that it started in 1968 and then it's continuing 40 years later with his last films as if that's all one event. Yeah, it's yeah. just sort of like they're all their own unique thing, but they're all taking place at different points in a trajectory of a zombie apocalypse as if they were one thing, but they're not really. Okay. If you yeah. know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. he wanted to take what was happening in the culture of the time period of a certain film and sort of use that as the satire or whatever the ingredients would be in the film of yeah. the moment. So what he was thinking about when he's making Dawn of the Dead would be different from Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead or Land of the Dead or right. whatever, because it would just be different things going on in the culture at that time. Yeah, I did listen to an interview where he talked about that a little bit, because there's also been things where people were projecting what he was comparing it to, and he was like, no, that's not really what I had in mind at the time. It was really, this is society reacting to something, and this is a projection of that. And what that is varies of course consumerism being a big one for this movie but not so much the other movies yeah i think that there was a certain bitterness that would creep in at times with romero who by all accounts was a great guy and everybody loved but i did think that the zombie thing became a blessing and a curse in his life it's clear that after night of the living dead he wanted to try to make other kinds of films and not get saddled with this it took him a decade to return to the zombie thing, even though everyone was asking him to. 
And then even after Dawn of the Dead, he immediately makes a film called Night Riders, which is the polar opposite of what this would be. He also had some resentment towards the people that were making a lot of money off of something that he sort of created and well, yeah, brought that to the mainstream. and Had he, to go on for the rest of his career and life. Yeah, let's be honest. The last couple zombie films he made, not a lot of people saw, and not it didn't really get a lot of traction here in America, and it's going up against... The Walking Dead, which one for of the a most popular was, shows, yeah, the biggest show on cable, and people are making countless Resident Evils and video games and Zombieland and Shaun of the Dead and remakes of his movies and lots of different stuff is happening post the year two thousand, and he's not really cashing in. Yeah, he he's struggling to get his smaller movies made at that point. Romero waited to make another zombie film after Night of the Living Dead for several years to avoid being stereotyped as a horror director upon visiting Monroeville Mall in Monroeville, Pennsylvania with a friend whose company managed the complex. He decided to use the location as the basis for the film's story. The project came to the attention of Italian filmmaker Dario Argento, who, along with his brother Claudio and producer Alfredo Cuomo, agreed to co-finance the film in exchange for its international distribution rights. Argento also consulted with Romero during the scriptwriting phase. Principal photography on Dawn of the Dead took place between November 1977 and February 1978 on location in Monroeville and Pittsburgh. The special makeup effects were created by Tom Savini, whose work on the film led to an extensive career creating similar effects for other horror films. Friday the 13th, for example. Yeah, I will say when I was watching the opening credits, seeing Dario Argento's name, that jumped out to me. I was like, oh, okay. How did he get involved in this? At what point in his... Where was he at in his career when this came out? He was pretty far along. Yeah. I think his first big movie was probably... Well, it was The Bird with the Crystal oh, right. Plumage was yes. like 71. And okay, then all so of a sudden yeah. he's on the map. So yeah, he's like probably... I think Suspiria was out by this point. Well, I, it probably I, came I, out like, what, 77? Yeah, I was thinking it was around the same time. To people like Argento and other filmmakers across the world who were interested in horror, I'm sure Romero was like a god. Yeah, yeah. We're not doing Night of the Living Dead. We're doing Dawn of the Dead, but it's impossible to to not talk about Night of the Living Dead, which was, folks, I would say right up there uh-huh. with Psycho in terms of like how important it was and how it changed everything for people. Because, again, and there's lots of movies you can say this about, whether you're talking about Texas Chainsaw or The Exorcist or Halloween or whatever, but before Night of the Living Dead, there was really nothing like that. Yeah. It's like, holy shit, these people are just eating people. And it's kind of real looking. Uh huh. And it was effective and good. And there was also an insanely prescient racial commentary, which wasn't even the original intent because it's not as if the lead character was written to be African American, but they just picked this guy because he was the best actor. And then it, yeah, they end up making the end of the film look like certain real life photographs of the civil rights era and everything. And it's like these guys just kill the hero of the movie because he might've been black and they just didn't trust him the same way as if the guy in this house was white or the same kind of thing. And I have to go back and watch that again. It's, it's been a while. I've got the criterion of course. Yeah. It's really sort of a, a subtle and really great statement at the end of the film. And so not only does it invent this whole zombie thing, which still is going today as a thing that people love, but it's just a really well-made, good film. And then 
his other stuff is sort of a mixed bag. I haven't seen a ton of his other films outside of the zombie stuff. I've seen some of them. It's hit or miss, but I think just making Night of the Living Dead, I'm sure there were a lot of people like Argento out there, if they heard he was going to do another zombie thing, were like, okay, let's get in on this. Absolutely. In post-production, Romero and Argento edited separate versions of the film for their respective markets. Argento's version features a progressive rock score composed and performed by his frequent collaborators, Goblin. Which is Suspiria, right? Yeah. While Romero's cut primarily favors stock cues from the DeWolf Music Library, which is just, I guess, free shit. There is some cool stuff in there, though, for stock music. I think there's some cool kind of music score moments. Well, there were still some Goblin tracks in the theatrical cut. Without actually looking anything up, I think you recognize the ones that are. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that the Argento cut is kind of cooler to me, I would say. The score is... Uh-huh. I would imagine. Is it more interesting? But I actually prefer the theatrical cut over the Argento one. Of course, because of this movie being insane. It's <laughs> still pretty insane even by today's standards. We're a little desensitized to this shit now. Uh-huh. But there's some moments in it that are pretty wild for a mainstream movie. Yeah. Some of the violence, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. The gore, the guts, the blood, the brains, whatever. I was sort of surprised at the limited scope of characters. I kind of thought it was going to be more than... Is this the first time you've watched this movie? Pretty much, yeah. I had seen parts of it as a kid, but I never watched this all the way through. Well, it earned an X rating. They decided not to fight the MPAA and release the film unrated, Love which is a huge gamble. Yeah. It paid off because they actually found a distributor willing to do it. It took some time though. It was also marked as one of the video nasties in the UK during that whole thing. There was a lot of moral panic over shit like this, as there always is. Next week we're doing another one. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these movies that we cover on this podcast, there's always this moral panic that over was the one what's thing. going on. Yeah, in that Romero interview I was listening to, he was talking about getting ratings in America versus the UK and how it's like the opposite. One is okay with violence and not sex, and one is okay with sex and not violence. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into a little bit about some of the stuff that comes up in Dawn of the Dead, a little bit of the subtext. Of course, because of the location, a mall and some of the key lines of dialogue in the film, people have certainly latched on to the idea that Dawn of the Dead is a satire of the mindless consumerism sweeping the nation, which of course leads into more of a bigger idea about greed and capitalism and whatnot. But it's weird because the thing that I never really thought too much about until diving into the research and rewatching it a couple of times in different cuts is how... It's not just the zombies. Yeah. The zombies showing up. Why are they here? This place was important to them. This is habit. You know, right. the whole thing. It's the survivors, too. Yeah, yeah. And how our four main characters who arrive from Philadelphia via helicopter, they kind of get sucked into it. Absolutely. And there is a complacency that they start to feel. And how when you juxtapose this horrific violent opening at a tenement in Philadelphia. Right. And then you think about it, what Romero's trying to say about the consumerism is our culture uses stuff, consumerism, capitalism, yes. buying things as a distraction from the real shit, the horror. Was that resonating with you a little bit? 
I've been doing it my whole life, yeah. George. <laughs> I'm one of the willing. Yeah. <laughs> Proud mall participants right here. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, the opening of the film in the TV studio and the arguing yeah. over what was going on and how people were only believing what they wanted to believe and they were rejecting science and screaming at each other and how there was like a real politicalization of the science. And I was like, we're fucking living this. I know. But it is a really cool way to just start off the movie, too. Yeah. Like, me knowing of this movie as being the zombies in the mall movie, it was sort of unexpected that this is the way that it starts off. Yeah, I I do think that there's a fair amount of people out there who prefer the first 30 minutes of the movie before you even get to the mall and see that as the highlight of the film. I like it all. Mm -hmm. I do think that the mall stuff gets monotonous, but I, I think that's almost a deliberate choice. In a way, I think that, that fits. they want to lull you into something to forget, because that's the whole idea. Right, the it mall just is making your you life. forget. Yeah, you consider <laughs> you forget the horror outside. But yeah, the the beginning is jarring and troubling, and I even love how it opens with Fran waking up from the dream that uh-huh. she's having, and she's waking up into the nightmare. That's right. The nightmare is her real life. But in this specific moment of time, right before chaos essentially that's the way it feels like they're at this tv studio and they're filming these final segments before it's just going to go into like whatever regular emergency broadcast yeah and everybody doesn't know what they're going to do after that yeah because that plays into my next talking point which is the house of cards of society society and capitalism and how quickly absolutely crumble i can remember at the beginning of the pandemic having that weird feeling where it sort of just felt like everything was about to come tumbling down? Well, I think over the last couple of years, there's been a few points of time yeah. where it felt like everything was about to collapse. <laughs> yeah, I think that in a weird way, and not just because of the obvious way, right? with there being a, a disease, uh, a pandemic going on, a lot of other ways, too, Dawn of the Dead feels like very prescient. Definitely. To this very specific moment. And that was what was really jarring to me about that opening of the film. I was yeah, like, I know. holy shit, this feels like real. I know, it is. It's like shockingly powerful. Thinking that in the face of something so unimaginably horrible as this virus that's causing the dead to reanimate and eat each other and eat people. I know. That and- you're going to get your point across by overshouting the other person. Yeah. Like That's going to do anything. <laughs> it's not going to make any fucking difference. Well, that is one thing that in a lot of zombie movies, people aren't really spending that much time talking about it. To start off, it's on TV and people are trying to figure out how to deal with this both rationally, but also how to even come to terms with what's happened. Yeah, I think logistically you could make an argument that Romero is sort of underestimating how fast this would happen. Yeah. That there wouldn't even be time for this, what's happening at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Because... But these weren't the running zombies. That's true, but it still feels like when you see how people are acting in the city, the urban areas, and they're hiding the bodies and not wanting to comply with this and not knowing what to do, it just seems like it would be much more of a rapid thing going on. Because it would probably take so much time. Like, look at the beginning of COVID. And how people were like, well, how does it transmit from one person to another? And the misinformation and the information uh-huh. changes because there's more research and more science. And I think at the beginning of this thing, it would probably take a while to even communicate. If you get bit, you will die and then you will reanimate. True. Yeah. 
Because even as you're watching it, because later Roger gets bitten. It takes he, a while for him. He doesn't die, yeah. and then it takes a while. And the bites in and of themselves don't seem life-threatening. So right. it must be if you get bitten at all, you will die, mm-hmm. which is sort of how it is in the 2004 remake. It doesn't matter if the bite itself would be fatal on its own. It gets in you, and yeah, then yeah. you die. You've been and poisoned. You yes. Up. But Dawn of the Dead also shines a light on humanity's propensity for violence, war, and possessions. And yeah. I think that beyond the gore and extreme violence and special effects, that this movie ends up being a really scathing satire of American life and American consumerism and capitalism that I'm sure that the majority of people seeing this in drive-in theaters and late-night theaters across the country in 1979 that might not have been landing yeah, for them it wasn't really no. fully grasping yeah. all of it yet but this movie's been written about and discussed and sure. talked about right. and dissected for over 40 years now the secret's out since dawn of the dead began filming in november of 77 at the monrovia mall they faced some certain challenges use of an actual open shopping mall during the christmas shopping season caused numerous time constraints Filming began nightly once the mall closed, starting at 11 p.m. and ending at 7 a.m. when the automated music came on. Even though the mall didn't open until 10, they just didn't know how to shut the automated music off, so they had to stop at 7. (laughs) That's a friggin' weird roadblock. As December arrived, the production decided against having the crew remove and replace the Christmas decorations because the task proved to be too time-consuming, so filming was shut down during the last three weeks of the year to avoid the possible continuity difficulties and lost shooting time. So production resumed in January. During the break in filming, Romero took the opportunity to begin editing his existing footage. I found that to be kind of funny because in 1977, they only put Christmas decorations up for three weeks. Yeah, yeah. It was a much more contained thing. Now, by the time we're done with Greatest October, they'll start putting the Christmas decorations up. The one thing I think I did notice is there is a sign, I think, in the JCPenney about a Christmas sale or something like that, or after Christmas sale or something. So there's a little bit of it, but not as extreme as Uh they were facing. The zombies in all of Romero's films, but most potently in Dawn, are the common man liberated and devouring the tenuous illusion of social safety. They are death. They are nature. They are the great equalizers. They are apathetic and operating on instinct. They are born out of our collective fear, our hate, out of our idiotic need to coat the world in chrome and pretend everything is all right when it's anything but. Men, women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, gay, straight, children, the elderly, it doesn't matter. All will die. All will come back to eat whoever and whatever is left. That's a quote from Dawn of the Dead over and over by Chris Alexander. Hmm. Romero definitely did offer up something very unique with these zombie movies. It was almost a a working class zombie. Oh, yeah. Has a very unique and distinct Western Pennsylvania (laughs) look and vibe. (laughs) Drinking Iron City. It's a little bit different from how zombies are portrayed today, and that's something we'll touch on more as we go along. But before we get into it, and we are going to focus on the theatrical cut, I didn't actually even have time to end up watching the the can extended cut, which is about, I don't know, 10 minutes longer or something like that. 
But there are three main cuts of the film. I think there's actually a lot more, as I said. I think okay. to get it through certain countries, they were just trimming whatever. Romero wasn't super precious about it as long as he had final cut in the English-speaking territories. And that's basically what ends up being the theatrical cut. The can cut is longer just because it was rushed. Yeah. There really wasn't any reason for it to be longer other than they just hurried up and put something together. And then I think he trimmed it a little bit more. I think that's the one I watched. Is that the one that's like two hours and 19 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. It just had extended cut. Yeah, it was the yeah. one they had at Cannes. And then Argento's is under two hours by one minute because I think part of the deal was they wanted it to be under two hours. Gotcha. That's part of whatever his thing was. Dawn of the Dead has received a number of other recuts, re-edits, and then, as I said, due mostly to Argento's rights to edit the film for international foreign language release. But Romero got to control the English language territories, and then the censors had their way with it. The can cut was a hasty 139-minute version of the film, and then it was later pared down to 126 minutes for the U.S. theatrical release, which is the one that we're going to be focusing on. I can't imagine that there's something that I would be able to pick up on that would be different at this point. I need to spend more time with the several cuts of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think the one thing that I picked up on from watching the Argento cut and the theatrical cut is that the Argento one is noticeably shorter, even though it's only about another okay. seven minutes shorter. Well, there but- is a certain segment of the movie where scenes seem like they are maybe too long, but I think to your point, possibly intentional. Yeah, those are not the things that he cut. Okay. He cut like still jokes and stuff that I, was like meant to be funny. I see some of the American sensibility from it. I think some of the character development, I didn't pick up on like a lot of huge differences other than the score, but I wasn't really perusing the Argento cut with an eagle eye or anything like that. But the movie is preceded by a warning that was included in some of the promotional material. And the reason was because it was released unrated. And as I said, they wanted to avoid the X rating. The reason being that even though the X rating was originally created as just something that would mean no kids would be admitted, that's it. Because R was like, well, parents could actually bring their kids to this. Mm -hmm. And they they thought they needed something up higher. For example, we've talked about this before. Somehow Midnight Cowboy is rated X at the time, but then The Exorcist was only rated R. It didn't make any sense. (laughs) It is weird why you would have to have that second level of rating. If a parent's making their decision to bring a kid to a rated R movie, why can they not make that decision to bring their kid to an X-rated movie? I just... Well... Like, it's a weird thing that somebody's governing. The reason they included this warning that I'm about to read is because X-rating or unrated was associated with explicit sex Mm -hmm. at this point. We're now basically a decade after Midnight Cowboy. The X-rating was given to, like, legitimate films for a while, but then it becomes more of a pornography thing. So, they include this to say there is no explicit sex in this picture. However, there are scenes of violence which may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. So, essentially, they were still trying to follow the X rating rules, but they just didn't want to have an X rating because people would think it was pornography. I did think it was fun to have that disclaimer. (laughs) Now, I guess there could be a separate argument about whether or not violence could ever be considered pornographic. Yeah, that's a thought. We begin our story 
Already in the midst of a nightmare, humanity is devastated by a plague that reanimates recently dead human beings as flesh-eating zombies. But this is still more or less the beginning, as horrible as it already is, the quote-unquote dawn, if you will. So far, millions of people have died and reanimated, but millions of others still survive. However, despite the government's best efforts, social order is collapsing. Rural communities in the National Guard have been somewhat effective in fighting off the zombie hordes in open country, but urban areas have descended into chaos. It is a weird split to come into. I think, and again, maybe this is just something that's evolved over time, but it seems like in a lot of zombie movies, we're amongst a small group of survivors. But at this point, it seems like there's a decent amount of people living their lives. Yeah, like I said, I think it's supposed to be about half, half and half. This is where it's equal before it tips the other Mm -hmm. way. The important thing to remember about Romero's apocalyptic vision is that the ravenous undead is just half the equation. Almost as disconcerting as the reanimated dead is the disappearance of rationality and control. That's sort of the secret sauce in these movies is watching society collapse and how quick... And relatively painless it can be. It can just snap and then all, all of a sudden it's you have over. nothing protecting yeah. you. Call 911, there's nobody answering. But there is always this sort of sense of community that sticks around too. Well, the- it's sort of a, a fight. Part of the argument even going on in the TV studio, it's people that still are pretending like things will be normal. Right, right. And trying to stick to predetermined social structure. Yeah, yeah. And other people realizing fuck just throw everything out the window there is no we're not going back to anything normal ever again right i'd almost immediately be like let's go try to live in the mall (laughs) the illusion of safety was revealed to be a mirage all along now replaced by chaos and social disruption the movie opens on a blood red carpet which serves as a harbinger for things to come Hmm. fran parker played by galen ross awakens from a disturbing dream. She is a producer at WGON-TV, a television studio in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The irony, of course, as I already mentioned, is that Fran is actually waking to a nightmare far worse than anything she may have faced in dreamland. Mm -hmm. That's like every day for me, so I feel you, Franny. (laughs) WGON is still broadcasting, but it's total bedlam inside the studio, shouting both on camera and off. Anger, panic, fear, and the disappearing sense that all will be okay. I love the part where Fran and that guy are arguing about putting the the stations, the safe stations on the screen because she says they're outdated. And the guy's like, well, if we don't put them on, people won't watch. And she's like, well, you're leading them to death. But their argument is being heard on camera. And then that, <laughs> yeah. guy, that one guy's like, shut him up. Shut him the fuck up. <laughs> They're just, like, flipping out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Chaos. I don't know how long we're going to stay in the air. Who the hell is on camera? Who the hell is on camera to a black guy? Roll the rescue. Roll the rescue station. 
just got a report that half those stations have been knocked out. Get me another list. Sure, I'll just pull it out of my ass, right? Dead are returning to life and attacking the living. I'm not so sure what to believe, Doctor. All we get is what you people tell us. And it's hard enough to believe It's without... fact. It's fact. It's hard enough to believe without you coming in here and... You're not running a talk show here, Mr. Berman. You can forget pitching an audience the moral bullshit they want to hear. You're talking about a band Franny, get the new list of rescue stations. Charlie's receiving on the emergency. Rescue stations. Half of those are inoperative as of now. Charlie, these are rescue stations. We can't send people to inoperative rescue stations. We've had all information on the air for the last 12 hours. Kill those old ones. Gibbons wants them. Kill them, Dick. How's Gibbons to see me? What do you have to give us? They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Do you understand that, Mr. Berman? That's what keeps them going. If we've listened, if we've dealt with this phenomenon properly, without emotion, without emotion, it wouldn't have come to There is a martial law state in effect in Philadelphia, as in all other major cities in the country. Need a bag. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. It is the order of the OEP by command of the federal government, the President of the United States. Citizens may no longer occupy private residences, no matter how safely protected or well stocked. A dead body must be exterminated, either by destroying the brain or severing the brain from the rest of the body. Should we be unable to check the spread? 
beat me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get now. I don't believe We're it. We're gonna what? get out in the chopper. David, we can't. We've got. It's 9 p.m. All right. Stephen, we can't. We've got to. We've sit. got to. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. Now you be upstairs at nine o'clock and don't let me come looking for you. Go ahead. We'll be off the air by midnight anyway. The emergency networks are taking over. Our responsibility is finished. In the central areas of the city, the bodies of the dead will be delivered over to specially equipped squads of the National Guard. Early in the film, a big thing is maintaining respect for the dead and how the martial law imposed on the city of Philadelphia is in conflict with how certain groups of people want to deal with it on their own, irregardless of their own safety or what decision may or may not be best. But this is familiar territory for us in 2022. It's the total politicalization of a crisis, no agreement, no consensus, Uh, no recognized authority on what to do what not to do. And so it just becomes this endless shouting match. And this particular TV station is probably a microcosm for what's going on across the country during the time. We're in sort of a slow descent into anarchy. It's never really made clear within the context of Dawn of the Dead what's going on across the world. It seems like an American thing, but you would imagine that eventually it becomes a worldwide thing. The rest of the world just laughing at America. Traffic reporter Stephen Andrews, played by... David M.G. arrives and tells Fran, his girlfriend, that they need to flee the city to survive. His plan is to steal the station's helicopter that night. Meanwhile, across town, police SWAT officer Roger DeMarco, played by Scott H. Reiniger, and his team raid a low-income housing project whose predominantly African-American and Latino tenants are defying the martial law of delivering their dead to the National Guard the tenants and the officers exchange gunfire as the officers try to gain entry. I was surprised at the amount of, or I guess the size of the police force showing up for this thing. I don't know, just let them. <laughs> well, I guess they're still living in a fantasy land where they're going to somehow control like, this. And, restore order. And quarantine or get rid of the infected. Yeah. Yeah, I think that Romero is confronting the racial and class divide here pretty early on it's pretty in your face and unignorable the makeup of this particular housing project and how that conflicts with i guess the the quote-unquote government the man the stand-in for the government here and it's a pretty horrific scene well and it speaks to sort of the anarchy that's going on because this is not the most organized raid i've ever seen rod the new guy. I'll be all right. Yeah. Immediately killed. <laughs> Bullet in the head. Yeah, me. It's pure pandemonium and bloody death before even Zombie One appears on screen. Yeah. They have an absolutely insane exploding head from a shotgun blast. That part's awesome. On. Yeah. <laughs> we'll circle back to that later because that particular effect was originally designed for something else. But it's clear that Romero wanted to show class conflict. We have the impoverished America here and how, in a way, consumerism is used as a distraction to these real horrors. The zombie element is just a fantasy. It's a man-made creation for the movie. But the real idea here is that consumerism, 
becomes this stand-in to distract from what we're seeing right off the bat. Right. And part of what we're seeing is Roger unsuccessfully trying to restrain this guy named Wooly, who is a brutal and racist officer who is taking this opportunity to uh-huh. indiscriminately murder unarmed citizens. Seems like a tough guy to be around. He's itching to kill people. He's the one that... He's got bloodthirst. ...uses the shotgun to just kill a guy. Yeah, Because, yeah. as I said, it's a bloodbath before we even see the first zombie. I know. <laughs> he just starts killing anybody. Wooly is ultimately shot dead by an officer from another unit named Peter Washington, played by Ken Faree who maybe audiences would recognize from a lot of Rob Zombie's films, Lords of Salem. Oh, yeah. Eventually, some zombies are discovered in locked rooms inside the building. It's a relentless, gross-out bloodbath. It's really gross to see them tearing at the flesh of the living. Uh Romero debuted this film, I believe, in Dallas at some sort of a film festival. I think it was a pick by... Not other than Roger Ebert, who was actually critical of Night of the Living Dead, but I think came to see the light. And there were these women that made a big show of walking out and then confronting Romero after the fact, saying that the film was nothing but schlock. And he agreed. He was like, yeah, you're right, except it's super schlock. (laughs) (laughs) I think Romero made no illusions about what he was creating and the trashy element to it. Well, you got to just double down and lean into it. As the SWAT team dispatched the reanimated dead that have injured or killed several tenants, a disillusioned Roger suggests that he and Peter desert and join up with his buddy Stephen in escaping the city via helicopter. You running? I don't mean because of Wooly. I mean because of all this. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Man, there's a lot of people who are running out. I could run. I could run right tonight. Grandma, he's got this helicopter. He asked me to come with him. I think it's right to run. Please to let me pass. Let's get into the barracks. No, no, please. Just let me pass. I go up to seventh floor to find my sister. Just let me pass. The people of 107 will do what you wish now. <coughs> Annie have died last week on these streets. In the basement of this building, we find them. I have given them the last rites. Now, you do what you will. You are stronger than us. Well, soon, I think, they be stronger than you. When the dead walk, senores, we must stop the killing or we lose the war. 
elderly priest emerges from the building's basement and tells them that several zombies are confined down there. The two take it upon themselves to take on the grim task of eliminating all of them. And the quote that stands out here is when Roger asks why are they doing this, and the answer is because they still believe there's respect in dying. Mm-hmm. Which, again, plays into how Romero treats his zombies versus how a lot of more modern storytellers treat theirs. That is true. There's just a recognition that these were once people. It seems like in most modern zombie movies, it's an immediate like they're separation. They're killing machines. Yeah, yeah. Most of them you don't meet until they're already zombies, and they're just anonymous monsters. Right, right. I think Romero goes to great lengths to make them unique which at first can feel goofy because you're thinking, okay, this zombie is a Harry Krishna and this <laughs> zombie is a football player and this zombie is a housewife, clearly, and this one is a doctor or something. Yeah, yeah. But like, I think that that, in a way, gives them all their own life. Personality? Even if it's a little heavy-handed and yeah, yeah. a way of doing it. But it, to the viewer, at least, it creates a separation. It makes each one their own unique person. Right. Later that night, Stephen discovers the dead body of a security operator who had been guarding the traffic helicopter belonging to the station. This guy kind of looks like a young Hugh Laurie to me. Stephen? Yeah. Yeah. Roger and Peter arrive just in time, joining Fran and Stephen, and then they all are leaving together. And this is the gang. Heading away from Philadelphia. Yeah, there's a little bit of mistrust of Peter, who the who Stephen and Fran don't know, but they just have to accept it. I guess it's like a pretty good crew to have one dude can fly a helicopter and you got two marksmen with rifles. Yeah. One of the things I noticed that was cut from the Argento version is the cigarette bit where okay. that doofus looking guy is asking them for cigarettes yeah, and yeah. they all say they don't have them and then immediately <laughs> light them up when he leaves. Those are the kind of little I humorous see. touches. Okay. All right. I'm starting to feel what the Argento version would be like. So they fly across Pennsylvania. There's some interesting sights from the helicopter. One of the quotes that jumped out to me, those rednecks are probably enjoying the whole thing. <laughs> it's a chance for the armed militias to rise up. Uh, the, another thing that like sort of resonates still today. It is clear, though, from the view from the sky that this thing has spread everywhere, even into the country and the rural yeah. areas that they're flying over. I know you don't have to worry about it as much as a helicopter, but when you think about the things breaking down in society, air travel in general just seems like a bad idea. There's so much that goes into the navigation of flight plans well, and everything. I'm assuming that most of the flights weren't happening anymore. They, I know, but you don't know what the hell's out there. Yeah, there's definitely private planes probably just taking off indiscriminately. Right. Some of the people on the ground are drinking Iron City beers. Hell yes. So the zombies in Dawn of the Dead are Romero's trademark slow, lumbering zombies. It's none of your 28 days later. Oh, yeah. Which running. some people don't consider a zombie movie. It's an infection or virus. That's true, but isn't that essentially what's causing this to happen in this movie anyway? I said some people. I do consider it a zombie movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it's irrelevant how yeah. they become like that. I'm with you. I think the distinction they're probably making is that it's unclear yeah. that they're dying first. Well, even in the Will Smith, I Am Legend, which I know is an old story that's had multiple versions of it, but I remember specifically in that one, people were saying that it's like vampires. And I'm like, well, that may be the case, but these seem very zombie-esque. Yeah, they were like zombie vampires. Yeah, I, yeah. I think the the distinction is that 
in 28 Days Later, it's not clear that they're dying. Yeah, that's true. Think of Brendan Gleeson. Right. He just gets that drop of blood in his eye, and he doesn't die. He just turns into one of those things. That's true, yes. So it's a little bit You're not different the un- from like the undead. Correct, yeah. They stop for some refueling and run into some issues there. That does seem like it would be a problem. I was mentioning to you a lot of the Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh stuff, <laughs> which I know that for most of our listeners is probably meaningless because aside from the majority of movies which are made in California, the rest of them are all made somewhere, so they're always going to have something going on. Yeah, but, yeah. And in recent times, like the last couple of decades, a lot of movies get made in Pittsburgh, but this was a time where that was not super common, and so there's a lot of like Pittsburgh stuff just left in there. You see notes in this place where they're refueling that have names of Braddock and Baldwin and Bradopolis and 412 phone numbers. Christian Balin out of the furnace. Braddock. Steven is still prone to making mistakes. He's going around to all these different hangars and looking at planes and shit, and he's getting boxed in, not staying alert. I would feel like that would be the one I know. thing you need to make sure is that you never are boxed in somewhere. Because, yes, if it's just one, you can probably get them out of the way. But if you get boxed in there and it's like 10 of them, you're fucked. I actually wrote down in regards to this, how can someone be that unaware of their surroundings? And then I was like, but then I think of myself. (laughs) It's sort of a little bit of a clue as to how things will go, though. Just the immediate complacency with what you're doing and you forget it. Because I think that the brain almost wants to trick you into forgetting and trying to go back to normal. Yeah, trying to calm you down. There's a zombie killed by the helicopter propeller, which was supposed to be a little bit of a foreshadowing of things to come, but the ending of the film ends up getting changed. We'll talk about that more later. The only zombies in this movie that don't move slow are the two children zombies, who I believe were nephews or something, Mm. of Tom Savini. Well, they still had youthful energy. They jump out and are sort of fast moving. It's pretty fucking dark when you think about it. Yeah. That Peter has to kill the two children with a gun. And they show it mostly in the movie. They don't really get too graphic with it. But True. It's a tough pill to swallow, and it plays into the emotions they were dealing with in the tenement building in Philadelphia and how, over time, you become desensitized and immune to it and i think that roger and peter to a certain extent develop a taste for killing and that's also the narrative that i think you can so see over time yeah steven humiliated he can't shoot no he almost shoots peter which infuriates peter and then peter like points the gun at him just really emasculating him in front well, of fran and everything i kept thinking i'm like they're just gonna kill steven just get him out of the mix But they need him because he flies the helicopter. At this point, yeah, he's the only one that knows how to fly. We've got to find fuel. Maybe closer to Cleveland. You know, we've got to stay out of the big cities. If there's anything like Philly, we may never get out alive. We may never get out of any place alive. We almost didn't get out of here. We're getting out of here fine, Peter. Just as long as there are not too many of those things around, we can handle them easy. It wasn't one of those things that nearly blew me away. We've got to stay in the sticks. I mean, there's bound to be more little private airports upstate. There's the locks along the Allegheny. Fuel stations there, state and private. No, those are probably still manned. We don't need those hassles either. We're just out after scavengers and looters. Oh, you got papers for this limousine? I got G-O-N-I-D, so does Fran. Right, and we're out doing traffic reports. Wake up, sucker. 
We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. We've got to find our own way. Jesus Christ, we don't even know where we're going. We don't have food, we don't have water, we don't even have a radio. Stephen, you need to get some sleep. In need of fuel, food, water, and sleep, especially for Stephen, the only pilot, the foursome come across a giant shopping mall. Despite the presence of zombies in the area, they decide to remain there since there's plenty of food, medicine, and supplies. They end up breaking into the mall and finding a an area that we're just going to refer to as a safe room. It's sort of a back hidden room in the mall. I think one thing that people don't really understand about malls sometimes is that there are a lot of hidden things like this in malls. Definitely. A lot of them are designed to be bomb shelters. And I think that there are actually malls in this country that store nuclear weapons, I've heard. I don't know if that's true, but I've heard that. Well, yeah, I mean, they definitely have all of these back tunnel hallways. what gave Romero the idea in the first place was not just the mall, but seeing the behind-the-scenes right, stuff. Right, yeah. Now, not everything that they shot in this movie is in the mall. I don't think there's some of the elevator stuff. and I don't know. There's certain parts of it that they used a set or an area that was separate from the mall to make it seem like it. But, yeah, the existence of this area does make sense. Now, do I think that Every mall in this country has, like, a supply of morphine and shit like that. I don't know. Dude, I wrote that down. I was stunned that that was in it. Although, I guess maybe it makes more sense with the whole bomb shelter thing. I think it's possible, but it would probably be a very limited amount of more extreme stuff. I'm sure they have, like, extensive first aid stuff somewhere. Well, I just wrote, like, once they bust that out, wouldn't these people get, like, addicted to morphine and overdose? If that was just available to you and you're just like living this life you would think. of nothing. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. So there are some zombies in the mall itself. Question is asked, why do they come here? Oh, yeah. It's a familiar place. It's habit. This was an important place in their lives. <laughs> that was resonating with me. <laughs> when in truth, I've barely been in malls the last like three years. Well, but... yeah, but prior to. Yeah, I did have some mall rat days, oh, for sure. I can remember the old place we worked at together, every lunch break, the Robinson no. Mall. <laughs> there wasn't much choice. Yeah. As I've alluded to already, unlike many other depictions of zombies across the various forms of media, George A. Romero depicts his undead this working-class middle America undead with real empathy. There is an actual sadness to what is going on. There's a heaviness because they all look like real people. You have children getting killed. You have men and women of all ages. And especially once the movie gets contained to this point where it's really just our four characters and there's just so many zombies... These were people with lives and unique personalities. Later, I think that zombies became faceless 
anonymous monsters with the maximum amount of horror being all that mattered. And Romero just approached it a little differently. Now in the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead, noticeable difference in what is being gone for. Thrills. Intense action sequences. Now we get some of that later in this movie, but that slow building of dread is far more present in the Romero version. Yeah. Where the Zack Snyder one is just basically nonstop action set pieces. Yeah, the pace is more heightened. And I think to modern audiences, the Snyder one would, of course, seem scarier. It's much faster paced. But there is sort of that loss of social commentary, for sure. Yeah. There's the loss of humanity, which may seem like it's making it less scary in Romero's version by trying to make them seem more human and dwelling on the empathy and the sadness that he feels for these people. But I think that it it makes it stick with you less. Yeah, There's a more disposable nature to the 2004 remake. Now, I think we both agree that we like the remake. Yeah. I would definitely put it among the better Zack Snyder movies. I'm not a it's huge fan. It's definitely fun and entertaining. Yeah. The cast is fun. It's a little too big. There's too yeah. many survivors in the mall. Their rationale for going to the mall seems confused. Yeah. I don't really know why they even go there. It just like, let's it's go a- there. It's an accident. Yeah, but there's a couple characters that are just saying, we're going to the mall. Right. But there's never really a reason for it. Yeah. Well, it almost feels like a series of vignettes watching it, too. Like, the transitions are kind of clunky. Yeah. It is mostly entertaining, though. They expand upon some of the stuff from the Romero one because there's a pregnant character, but she actually gives birth to a zombie baby, which is pretty fucked up. I have to tell you, and I think this is relevant, I did see the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead in the theater, but I went with my dad and my little sister. My dad remembered the 70s one, and I think he sort of felt like it's zombies, but it's not really like that scary. It's zombies, they're like these slow-moving things. And then after the like opening sequence where the main girl's husband, Sarah Polly's husband, is yeah immediately a zombie like chasing after, and it's like all this crazy violence, him and my sister left, and I watched the rest of the movie by myself. <laughs> She was young, but like, I just don't think he was expecting it to be like that intense because he kind of remembered like the pace of the old movie. Right. Yeah. And there is the gratuitous sex scene too. Yeah. Well, they didn't make it that far. <laughs> yeah, I would say that the main thing that the 2004 remake is missing is the charm, but it still brings enough intense moments and interesting little wrinkles and stuff that it's it's worthy of checking out yeah but i think that when you really study the romero original you can see the shortcomings a little more clearly because it's sort of lacking that same point and feeling yeah so of course as you're all thinking Mm -hmm. dawn of the dead is very much like that say by the bell episode when they (laughs) sleep overnight in the mall to get you two tickets best episodes (laughs) And end up on candid camera. No, the thing that I love about movies like this, because of course, I think anybody who's listened to the show for a long period of time knows that I love old malls, especially Mm -hmm. in the 80s. 80s malls in California is like a fetish. (laughs) I love it in any movie. But seeing the unique signage, 
storefronts. Yeah. Everything looked like its own unique place. It wasn't all that very bland, gray, flat look that every mall has now, and every store kind of looks the same. Yeah, they have their own little logos and shit, but uh-huh. you know what I mean. Seeing the Brown Derby bar restaurant yes. place and just those different like looks, even whenever Fran is in one of the salons later, I think it might be when she's trying to do Steven's hair or something. The mirrors and the counters in that I salon know. look different and unique. It's not just a flat gray thing with generic mirrors. Like sure. everything just looked very distinct. Everything was full of character. And I just love how the mall looks in this movie. I know. People, there was a time period in Zach Mad's life where we spent our Friday nights going to a mall that was basically had no right being open anymore. <laughs> Now, for people who follow me on Letterboxd, I told a little bit of this story oh, in a review for the film Drive. Did you? <laughs> so go check that out for full details. Because remember that guy? Were you there when that yes, guy was wearing, was wearing the, the Drive jacket? jacket. And yeah. he smelled like cigarettes oh, so bad. Yeah. He just had a stack of Blu-rays. Right. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's a thin line. And like, it's it a w- thin line sometimes. We kind of were going at the point where most things were gone already, but it somehow seemed like every Friday, like there another store was closing. There actually were zombies in that mall. Yeah. We were, it was just like we were part of it. <laughs> we were the zombies. Yeah. Buying shit from FYE. It's a mall in the Pittsburgh area that's now closed, but it's huge. It was a huge mall. Yeah. Three floors in certain sections. is the biggest mall in the area by far. Right. The Monroeville Mall is pretty big, but it was bigger than that. And yeah, it was in such disrepair and on the verge of closing and most stores were closed but yeah we loved going there (laughs) just for like a couple of months oh yeah it was a little run we had a little time period it's a treacherous but ultimately mostly successful first night as the men descend down from the safe room and into the mall in search of supplies almost everyone has their own close call with a zombie including fran who's left alone back in the room Boiler room sequence. I, I just wrote down Hugh Laurie stinks at trying to shoot Ziggy Stardust zombie in boiler room. <laughs> <laughs> it is a recurring theme that Steven needs to improve his shooting. But you know what I mean with the makeup on that yeah. zombie? <laughs> Eventually, Steven reveals to the group that Fran is pregnant, providing even more uncertainty, especially for the future. Yeah, I was almost having a little bit of a Quiet Place vibe. Yeah. We were like, man, they're going to try to... Nothing's new. Everything yeah. came from something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Dawn of the Dead, I think, definitely foreshadows the greed is good 1980s, the excess of the 80s, which, spoiler alert, is something that we'll definitely be talking about next week, oh. the excess of the 80s. Yeah, my favorite. And I think that either Romero saw the writing on the wall or he just got really lucky to see where the country was going but this idea of these mega malls and mass consumerism and being obsessed with social status and things was only going to increase over the next 10 years after this film and the irony of steven's comments on the zombies is that the survivors are doing the same thing they're returning to the mall seeking out comfort and stability and something familiar that they know And they fall into those same exact patterns that he was sort of, I don't want to say mocking, but sort Mm -hmm. of pointing out about the zombies. They sort of do that instinctually, too. Absolutely. Which you can understand. And all of a sudden, you're in a gold mine. Compare 
what was happening back in the TV studio versus this tranquility of the mall, this eerie tranquility. And it's easy to slip into this complacency that will plague the group and I think lead to their demise in a certain way. And it is sort of jarring to remember how fucked up things were in that building in Philadelphia and then also the TV studio. And then they fly away from it and now they're being lured in to be hypnotized by the music oh, yeah. and the sales and the pretty signage and everything else that comes along with them all. Hypnotized by this place. Don't see that it's a prison. So let's talk a little bit about the Fran of it all. <laughs> Please. Because it's inevitable that the sole woman in a group of three other men becomes a potential source of tension. There's an unspoken thing that always hovers over these kind of situations. She's certainly isolated among them. And she's the one that does see the danger in potentially staying at the mall. She points it out right away. But she's also a constant reminder of the lack of a future because of her pregnancy. This pregnancy becomes a problem that is often not talked about. But even when it is, it's without her, which is also sort of its own fucked up commentary. They're discussing the possibility of an abortion while she's supposedly asleep. Yeah. It's making the other characters be confronted with something that they don't want to have to think about, which is the future. Because Mm -hmm. at some point, she will give birth. But what are they going to do about that? If they somehow can do it, what world is the baby being born into? And it's a reminder that the world is probably ending. Yeah. Which is something they also don't want to think about. Just be a nonstop screaming machine also. Galen Ross also insisted that her character not scream. And Romero immediately fell in line thinking that was a good idea. And you notice that Fran never screams in the film. Oh, yeah. Always calm. Because that was something that was sort of criticized about Night of the Living Dead. That the women just sort of become useless screaming nothings okay and she has more control and agency and and eventually evolves into someone able to make decisions and take stands and do things on her own fly the helicopter yeah she's like i want to learn how to do this because she calls it out you might die yeah (laughs) in fact we've all been talking about how you might die we're pretty sure it's a good possibility we've seen you try to fire a weapon if we talk about the Fran of it all, we might as well talk about the Steven of it all. Please. His wounded masculinity is definitely <laughs> ongoing theme. Yeah. Because it becomes this constant drive. He's like, what the fuck? I, I was just going to bring my woman in this helicopter. Yeah. Now, now I have like, to look like an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> constantly. There's this constant drive to prove himself to the men with skills more apt for this situation. And in a way, Steven reminds me of Brody on the boat in Jaws when Quint and Hooper seem much more oh, yeah. able to handle themselves on a boat and have this fisherman mentality and all that shit. And Steven is vital, just like Brody is. Definitely. Because he's the only one who can fucking fly this helicopter, but it ends up not mattering once they've landed. Once right. they're in the mall, that fades to the background. Yeah. And his inability to shoot straight <laughs> becomes a problem. Yeah. And as I pointed out before, there is gradually a shift in Peter and Roger who go from wanting to desert their post because of the horrors that they're seeing and having to deal with this to gleefully shooting the zombies and starting to develop a real yeah taste for it 
The normal question, the first question is always, are these cannibals? No, they are not cannibals. Cannibalism in the true sense of the word implies an interspecies activity. These creatures cannot be considered human. They prey on humans. They do not prey on each other. That's the difference. They attack and they feed only on warm human flesh. Intelligence, seemingly little or no reasoning power, but basic skills remain are more remembered behaviors from uh, normal life. There are reports of these creatures using tools. But even these actions are the most primitive. The use of external articles as bludgeons and so forth. I might point out to you that even animals will adopt the basic use of tools in this manner. These creatures are nothing but pure motorized instinct. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. They must be destroyed on sight. Peter and Stephen camouflage the entrance to the stairwell, which leads to the safe room, and then the men undertake the very long and involved process of blocking the mall entrances with trucks found nearby in order to prevent more of the undead from entering. I know they get into it a little bit more as it goes, but watching this closely to the Zack Snyder version, I will say the Zack Snyder version, it seems like they have a little bit more fun with the mall element. This seems a lot harder to hang out in the mall. The zombies are more prominent, whereas in the Zack Snyder one, there's like a whole section of the mall that they're like secluded from the zombies. Well, eventually they do take care of that. Yeah, yeah. But it eventually gets ruined by the biker gang. But That's yeah, they right. do sort of create that world. A haven. And I think they yeah. do embrace it. They sort of, as I'm pouring more wine, <laughs> they do allow themselves to enjoy this society that they've created for themselves. But it's sort of tainted because of what happens to Roger, like right before they do that. Right. So this whole thing of moving these trucks, which happen to be at a location nearby... I guess they spotted through binoculars. I'm not even really sure how they spot them. This involves multiple trips back and forth to the location of the trucks, driving through crowds of zombies who are indifferent to their own injuries and remain in constant, slow-paced pursuit. Roger narrowly survives a dangerous encounter while trying to hotwire a truck, but then becomes increasingly reckless as a result. Before he and Peter are able to finish, Roger is bitten by the zombies. So... When you're retroactively watching this in 2022, you're bringing your knowledge from all other zombie movies into this. And so it's interesting to go back and see how they handle this because there's still a lot of uncertainty about exactly what's going to happen, especially for the audience. We don't know, is he going to die or is one bite enough to turn you? Which is something that is way more quickly gotten to in the 2004 remake. They sort of figure it out on their own that once you're bitten once, it's over. Yeah. They don't really address it that head on in this movie. They're just sort of like, well, let's wait and see what happens. We don't know. No one understands the full process. But it turns out that over time, he will begin deteriorating, and it is inevitable, even though the bites themselves are not actually fatal. But once you're bitten, it's over. There is still that feeling of hoping against hope that he's going to pull through from this. It kind of feels like they know. Yeah, I think they mostly they have their suspicions, know. Yeah, yeah, they mostly know where this is going. Right. He's you still know. alive and acting normal. He's a comrade. So, yeah. 
Although he does have that one line of dialogue that seems to imply that he knows uh-huh. that it's going to happen. He's like, well, we still got a lot to do before you can lose me. That's true, yeah. There is this insane gun store in the mall. <laughs> now, this was not actually in the Monroeville Mall. This okay, was a yeah. store, I think, in East Liberty or some shit, which is not really that close to Monroeville. No. But they make it seem like it's in the mall, and they film a lot of different things in there that really make that continuity feel true like it's there but yeah there's yeah, that would be doing fucking it. nuts if they had this gun store in a <laughs> <Yeah>. mall <laughs> it's like a fucking arsenal the four of them now seemingly safely barricaded within the mall set out to clear the interior of the remaining zombies first kill then clean up after they finish the four begin enjoying a newfound lifestyle of excess food and games and clothing against all odds they seem to truly buy into this utopian society they've created for themselves. They're still here. They're after us. They know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. Used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here. Roger eventually succumbs to his wounds and dies. When he reanimates as a zombie, Peter shoots him in the head and then later buries him in the mall, which I was like, can I sign up for that? Can I be buried in a mall? (laughs) (laughs) When Roger reanimates and he comes up from underneath that sheet like that in sort of slow motion, right? it reminded me of a scene from my favorite zombie movie, Cemetery Man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But in that movie, she's not actually dead, and he shoots her anyway, (laughs) and then he realizes his mistake after the fact. It's sort of a tragic error of judgment man cemetery man is great yeah what if we recreate the scene from dawn of the dead except just like a regular balding man it's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen and she's nude (laughs) (laughs) i'm in (laughs) yeah cemetery man we did cover on the show back in the first greatest october i don't think we'll ever revisit it because it's kind of hard to see yeah I didn't realize Dawn of the Dead was also kind of hard to see, I guess, but I looked up Cemetery Man to see if it was streaming anywhere because I thought maybe I would recommend it if it was on like a Tubi or something. And no, it's not even, well, like, you can't even come up on Roku. So, well, it's an unofficial recommendation because we both enjoy the movie thoroughly. Yeah. And it is probably mostly not seen by most people, yeah. <laughs> I would say. So, there is that. Steven and Fran enjoy a private dinner in one of the mall's restaurants, still chasing some kind of normality. Steven takes this opportunity to propose to Fran, who turns him down on the grounds that it wouldn't be real. Sometimes it feels like Fran is the only one living in reality. The others, including the recently departed Roger, were intent on buying into this fantasy. Yeah. So this is literally the harshest 
turn down you could imagine because we almost oh. are in that situation where she's basically saying not even if you were the last man on earth <laughs> i mean because they are approaching that and yeah she's still like no thanks i know now that roger is gone it's just like some hardcore third wheeling going on yeah you know just a rough scene i think that is one of the underlying tensions of the film though is well what the fuck are we doing yeah are we staying here we don't really have a plan that lack of certainty right, of what's going to happen next. You have to have this defeated feeling because, well, what can the plan be? There's no good option. Slowly over time, they've converted this safe room into a house. It's like an apartment up there now. Yeah, yeah. They've brought up beds and chairs and furniture and everything, and it just seems like an apartment. Yeah, light some candles. It seems very livable. This is a quote from Lorna Jowett in an essay called Things About Francine. All four once, quote, safe in the mall, fill in time as best they can with distractions and increasingly meaningless activities, quote unquote, robbing the safe, putting on makeup, eating luxury foods, practicing a tennis stroke and watching TV are all meaningless because the context that gave them meaning no longer exists. I would maybe push back a little bit on the food. You still got to eat, so why not eat the best stuff? Absolutely. Despair dawns slowly making this a surprisingly long horror film. So yes, the movie is long, and sometimes it can feel long. I've come to the realization that I think that this was intentional. First of all, Romero had final cut, so he was going to keep everything he wanted in it. But I do think that the slow turn to complacency is being highlighted by this. Yeah. Time goes by. Right. But it goes by slowly. It goes by slowly, but they're quick to let this become their lives. Yeah, their guard starts to drop. They start to buy into this as if it's real. Well, we don't really need to worry about what comes next to answer the question of what I was just saying before. There is no next. We're here. Sounds great. Let's just hang out. But Fran says, quote, what have we done to ourselves when she's sort of... I don't know. Melancholy shortly after the proposal. I'm sure you do just start to slowly go crazy over time with this. I mean, I try not to beat myself up too much about it, though, because what are your options here? Yeah, that is the thing. No options are great. You're taking a big risk by going back out into the world. Yeah, I think the biggest risk is that the helicopter is short on gas and they don't really know for sure where they can get it next. And where is safe out there? Fran, at the very least, though, remains proactive. She learns how to shoot a gun and defend herself. Steven also teaches her how to fly the helicopter. At this point, all emergency broadcasts have ceased suggesting the collapse of the government in any form of a stable society. The three survivors load some supplies into the helicopter in case they might need to leave suddenly. However... It's during one of Fran's flying lessons that the helicopter is spotted and everything changes. Mm -hmm. Problems. The people who see the helicopter and put two and two together about people being in the mall is a nomadic biker gang essentially transformed into apocalyptic raiders. They see the helicopter in flight, leading them to then break into the mall. One of which being Tom Savini, which... I figured he would be in. Wasn't really expecting him to have as prominent as a role. Destroying the barriers and allowing hundreds of zombies inside with them. Yeah, Savini and Ken Foray and I I think even the other people are all in the remake in smaller parts. Yeah. 
I know that the one store is called Galen Ross. Okay, right. The actress who plays Fran. But I think they all appear briefly. Yeah. I know Ken Foray is like a, a television preacher. Yeah. Televangelist. Yeah. There we go. I've been drinking some wine tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is in disbelief. You're in I, sort of I your own him, little Dawn of the Dead living situation right now. <laughs> I tell him to come over at 7.30 to start recording. We're not even pressing record till well after 10. <laughs> explaining to me that you just can't get drunk <laughs> but not like bragging about no, it no no like depressed yeah yeah like it's just not happening and almost me. like defeated like you can't figure it out well i can figure it out it's just <laughs> and no it's not that i have some big tolerance it's that i actually just literally don't like the taste of anything so yeah. i drink so slow <laughs> that it just takes forever they bring motorcycles into the mall and along with them is an indignity to the dead I think that there's some conscious choices here, having them rip the jewelry literally off of a zombie woman, that if this was a real person, it's this Yeah, reckless, disrespectful. It's gross in a weird way, because even though these are zombies, because of the way Romero has portrayed them and how they look, you start to feel bad for them. You're like, Jesus Christ, dude. Well, it's another one that's explored in various zombie movies is... This red herring over zombies being the villain and then like the people end up being worse. Yeah. Despite having a fallback plan already in place for this exact scenario, Steven goes rogue, consumed by territorial rage over the mall. This is ours. This is our place. He opens fire on the looters, kicking off a protracted battle. Most of the bikers eventually end up overwhelmed by the zombies getting eaten and killed. Steven tries to hide in an elevator shaft, but he drops his weapon, gets shot by a biker, and then mauled by zombies. One of my notes here just says, gnarly shit. (laughs) (laughs) I think they take some of the gore to another level here, where they're bringing in animal organs and all kinds of gross shit. Because now the zombies are going for the stomach and ripping people open. Yeah, They do start to ratchet it up with just the violence and all the effects. We're going to talk more about the other zombie movies in Romero's series at the end, but I haven't seen them all. I I didn't see the last two, so it is what it is. But I do think the grossest death is probably that I've seen was probably in Day of the Dead, which has some really grotesque kills, but Dawn of the Dead is so much better of a movie than... Mm -hmm. We're doing Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> yeah. Dawn of the Dead is more fun than Night of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead. And I don't really think any of the other ones would even remotely be a consideration. Come close. Yeah. They did use actual amputees as some of the zombies to help with the illusion that they've had their limbs ripped off and stuff like that. Okay. Give me that. Absolutely. Over CGI. Definitely. Savini as I said, spent some time in Vietnam and that was like a huge influence on his special effects makeup career, which is fucked up beyond belief to even think about it. Absolutely. But I guess you gotta roll with the punches and for sure. take what you got. Well, good for him to be able to turn it into this career. He actually directed the nineteen ninety remake. That's right. I did know with that. Tony Todd. Yeah. Of Night of the Living Dead, right. I should say. I should specify. When Steven turns zombie, he instinctively heads back to the safe room and thus leads the undead to Fran and Peter, 
Peter kills the undead Stephen while Fran escapes to the roof. Peter, not wanting to leave the mall, locks himself in a room and contemplates suicide. However, when the zombies burst in, he has a change of heart and fights his way to the roof where he joins Fran. Low on fuel, they manage to escape and fly into an uncertain future. For everything that happens with Roger and his sort of prolonged death, Stephen removed from the narrative pretty quickly. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not a long... Well, his bites were fatal. Yeah. They were ripping him apart. That's true. No heroic last stand from him. Speaking of heroic, some of the music choices that Romero made, the heroic music that plays when Peter decides that he wants to live and fights his way up to the roof is sort of cringe. (laughs) It sort of reminds me of... Well, that's, generic 80s action you do, shows. You notice, like, the stock music. Dun, 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 dun. It's like, what the fuck is this music now? Is this the A-team? The ending was originally different. According to the f- original screenplay, Peter and Francine were actually supposed to kill themselves. Peter by shooting himself and Fran by sticking her head into the path of the rotating main helicopter blades. Could you imagine huh. if that was the end of this movie? <laughs> That would be the most legendary ending to a movie of all time, I think. Also, what a way to kill yourself. The ending credits would run over a shot of the helicopter blades turning until the engine winds down, implying that the two would not have gotten far anyway if they had chosen to escape. During production, it was decided to change the ending of the film. Much of the lead-in to the two suicides remains in the film as Francine leans out of the helicopter upon seeing the zombies approach and Peter puts a gun to his head, ready to shoot himself. An additional scene showing a zombie having the top of his head cut off by helicopter blades, thus foreshadowing Francine's suicide was included early in the film. That's when they stopped to refuel. Oh, yeah. Romero has stated that the original ending was scrapped before being shot, although behind-the-scenes photos show the original version was at least tested. The head appliance made for Fran's suicide was instead used in the opening SWAT raid, made up to resemble an African-American male and blown apart by a shotgun blast. Mm, yes, okay. There is some conflicting information. It seems like they did shoot the original ending, but didn't put in all of the effects and everything or something like that because some of the behind-the-scenes documentary footage seems to show it. But Romero was oddly adamant that they never did <laughs> and would fight on it okay. occasionally. But who cares? It yeah, doesn't yeah. Really matter. right. I think that would have been an insanely bleak and grim ending, but, but also cool. Yeah, that would have been <laughs> like a holy shit. I like it. I like like the vague ending. It's semi hopeful, but you know that there's, there's not, not much hope. Yeah, yeah. Out there. All in all, Romero completed six films in his dead series: Night of the Living Dead from 1968, Dawn of the Dead 1978, Day of the Dead 1985. Land of the Dead, 2005, Diary of the Dead, 2007, Survival of the Dead, 2009. He was working on a film called Twilight of the Dead, which the script was finished for and is apparently going to happen at some point. I think there were news stories last year that it was heading into production or something. I don't know who's directing it. I have to be honest, I never saw Diary of the Dead or Survival of the Dead. I know that late in his career these films were not generating much interest in america sure i think in foreign markets he was still a little bit more viable and these movies were getting attention but 
I don't even know that those two were even released theatrically. I don't really remember that. No idea. I did see Land of the Dead so. in the theater. Okay. With Dennis Hopper. Yeah. And it was sort of amusing. Nothing really jumps out to me about it now. I think I watched part of it. I think I have the Blu-ray somewhere. Well, I definitely watched part of it, but I don't think I ever watched it the whole way through. Day of the Dead, as I mentioned, has some really gruesome stuff in it, and some of the visuals in it are super cool. There's that one part where all those arms are reaching through the wall, which I think they used in Stranger Things 3 oh, when yeah. they go to a movie or something. That is like a really memorable moment, and there's really cool shit in it, but I, I just found the overall story kind of boring. I never really got into it very much. I think Dawn of the Dead is by far the best and most interesting of the series. It goes without saying that you can't get to Dawn without Night of the Living Dead. It is the innovator. It is the first one. It is special. But Dawn of the Dead, I think, is the perfect combination of zombie shit and cool shit, but also the social commentary that hits the hardest, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's a super cool movie. No doubt about it. So there was a remake to Night of the Living Dead in 1990, directed by Tom Savini, and then the 2004 Dawn of the Dead remake. But beyond that, as we've mentioned, the legacy is endless. Dawn of the Dead especially casts this huge shadow, Night of the Living Dead too. Now, Romero's been gone for four years or so. Wow. It seems like we've hit a breaking point with the zombie stuff and culture again because I think Zombieland 2 was mostly a bomb and nobody yeah. cared. And It'll come back again, though. The Walking Dead just stayed on the air so goddamn long that I think people stopped caring long yeah, before it ended. I'd say. I think I watched maybe the first two seasons of it and lost interest. That's the thing. It's It feels sacrilege to say because we're in Pittsburgh. We're people that love movies. But ultimately... It's not as if I'm a big zombie guy. Sure. It's never same, really that same into zombie. Look, as revealed by this episode, I haven't seen most of Romero's movies. He has some very obscure ones and some ones that are strange that he directed, including a TV movie about O.J. Simpson. Oh, interesting. In the 70s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. Before the interesting stuff. <laughs> Folks. Yep. So I think that'll do it for... Dawn of the Dead. We're obviously not super big experts, so if you're coming to us for the definitive Dawn of the Dead thing, then probably look not. elsewhere. Yeah, probably not gonna be satisfied with just, our dumbasses. Having some fun with it. But that'll wrap up another greatest October. I think we're gonna skip recommendations because it's getting late. Tired. Drag this thing out. Yeah, yeah. It's so late tonight. And I didn't really have time to watch anything new. And I just haven't been watching anything worthwhile. I flirted with the idea of doing Tears of Halloween instead of a ranking of all of the Halloween movies, having Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, like different tiers. But then I thought, well, Halloween's its own thing. I don't want to cram that into this. And then I thought, well, I could talk about seeing the 30th anniversary of Bram Stoker's Dracula in the theater, but I don't really want to do that either. (laughs) But that did happen. That did happen, though. Well, these are things we've already covered. Sure. I'm at that stage now where most of the things I'm watching are things that I've already seen. Yeah, just go (laughs) back and listen to those episodes. So anyway, thanks for listening. Find us on Twitter at GreatestPod. 
And make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. So you never miss an episode. As mentioned earlier, we're going to get back to a regular once a week schedule on the same day. Everything will go back calm to normal. back down. Yeah. We're chasing that normality, just That's like right. yeah. Fran, Peter, Stephen, and Roger. It's what people want, though. <laughs> we are the, the consumerism distraction Absolutely. for people in yes. their day-to-day lives. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. And if you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter, as always, at GreatestPod. Don't worry. We're not taking a break. We'll be back next week. And... We have two more listener requests coming up this year, I believe, for Eric and Bill. If you've never given us a listener request to this point, you can still feel free to do so. Probably on Twitter would be the easiest way to reach out. If you've already given us a listener request, just hold on for now. We're not doing that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Enough. Please. No, I think we may discuss some sort of option for that in the future. I, I don't know. But we're not taking repeats at the moment. The window's closed right now. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. And Matt Crosby, have a happy Halloween, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. But it's too late to say you're sorry How would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her She's not there Well, let me tell you about the way she looked The way she acted, the color of her hair Her voice was soft and cool Her eyes were clear and bright But she's not there told me about her what could I do well no one told me about her though they all knew but it's too late to say you're sorry how would I know why should I care please don't bother trying to find her she's not
bit lovely. Let's make love nice and sexy. Let's make sex nice and horny. Fuck these bitches, fuck them in the ass on my private jet. Yo, economy class. Suck my titties, I smoke your grass. You be losing your mind when you're eating this ass. Good God. When you're eating this ass. 